Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. The passage this week is controversies again. The Pharisees butting heads with Jesus on a couple of issues, one being eating and the other being fasting. And I think it's no coincidence that the Lord would have this morning be the time that we gather around the table and celebrate our Lord's death in communion and the question of feasting being, being involved and at the very end of our passage this morning about new wine and fresh wineskins. And although we don't drink wine at Crestwick when it comes to communion, um, actually the little cups are getting dangerously close to communion because who knows how, or wine, because who knows how long that grape juice has been in there. Um, but we're grateful for the opportunity we have this morning to celebrate communion. Now, our passage this morning is Mark chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 13 down to the end of verse 22. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Speaking of Jesus and his disciples, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's just take a moment and bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do uh, want to thank you for this morning. We do want to thank you for the time, the opportunity that we have to gather in your word. We may not be gathering together in this same place, but we can gather to the same place in your word to glean the same things from your word and to hear afresh your word to us. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus. We pray that you would help us to follow him as he, as we see even in this passage, the call to follow him going out. We pray that you would help us to be faithful. We pray for this Zoom games night that we have planned. It may seem like a weird thing to pray for a games night, for something on the computer. But Lord, we, we really do want to have this become an opportunity for further fellowship, time of strengthening and encouragement. 
It's not the old way of doing things and we long for and yearn for the old ways of doing things when we can be face to face. But we pray that this would be a time of refreshment and encouragement for those who need it. We thank you for the opportunities that have been availed to us through the internet and through computers. We pray that you would find us faithful with these tools, that we wouldn't abuse the things that you've given us, that we would utilize the things that you have given to the church to strengthen and encourage your people. We ask all these things now as we come to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw that Jesus healed a paralytic and we walked through, Jesus has done a number of miracles. He's healed a a number of different people of various diseases. We're actually just told that he healed many different diseases. We're not even given the exhaustive list. And then we see that he came back last week out of being, being out traveling around preaching and teaching and healing people. He came back to Capernaum, his home base. And now we're told in verse 13, he goes out again beside the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee. He goes out again. Jesus is always going out. And this, this is something, again, the ESV, as I read through chapter 1 and into chapter 2, the ESV will, will place um, the ands, A-N-D, the, the word and at the beginning of the paragraph. And so in the ESV, it says in verse 21, and they went out. In verse 29, and immediately he left the house. Verse 35, and rising very early. 40, and a leper came to him. Beginning of chapter 2, and when he returned, it's, he's just continually, and this, and this, and this. Kind of like the little kids, you know, when they're telling a story. And, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then we went there, and then that happened. It's kind of like Mark. No insult to Mark. He's just, he's going from one thing to the next. And again, he comes to going, and, and then he went out again beside the sea. He goes out again. Again, this happened. And he's, Jesus is always going out. He's always leaving and going out to the people. He's not just staying where he is. Again, he's being different than every other rabbi. He's not waiting for people to come to him. He's actively going out. And the crowd is then coming to him in the wilderness. Maybe that's in part because we just had the section where they were crowded in the house. So Jesus goes out. The crowds are going to come to him. Jesus goes out to where there's space so that when the crowds come to him, everyone can get to him. And he was teaching them. We don't want to lose sight of that. Jesus never loses sight of his true mission and what he is here to do, to teach, to show them the kingdom of God in himself, to bring them the good news that salvation is to be found in him. He is always teaching them. And as he passed by, this is verse 14, that is passing by the sea, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. That is a very short summary, very similar to James and John, very similar to Simon and Andrew. It's just the call. This is their name. Jesus said, follow me. There's that little blurb with James and John and Simon and Andrew and I will make you fishers of men. But this is just follow me and he rose and followed him. We're not told anything else outside of Levi, the son of Alphaeus. We know his name. We know who his father was. And we know by the fact that he was sitting at the tax booth that he's a tax collector. And this tax booth being out by the sea, that should actually catch your attention. What was the tax booth doing out by the beach? It's a very odd place for it to be there. Very odd for this tax booth to not be in the city where the people were. Jesus goes out to the Sea of Galilee. He's wandering around. Crowds come to him. What is this tax booth doing here? He's passing by, and there's this tax booth. Well, the Romans came in. They've got Roman occupation in Israel. And as we know from the other story of the tax collector, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector as well. And and what happened was, 
Rome would kind of subcontract out certain taxes for Jews and other people in the area to collect taxes for them. Rome took care of the, the big taxes. They were, the Romans would be the ones with the tax booths likely in the city for all of the big taxes. They didn't trust that to anyone else. But likely, because Al- Levi is sitting out um, in his tax booth by the sea, what we do know from history is that the Roman occupation, the Roman rulers, as they subcontracted out these, these tax booths, it was just the trade goods, the, the taxes that they would get from, from food, from wheat, from, from all of the normal daily life things, not the big like housing things, but the, the normal everyday trade. The taxes that would have been collected were likely the things that Levi was, was working on. Those were the taxes he was working on. In all likelihood, being out by the sea, he was collecting taxes on fish. The fishing industry was what happened by the sea. And the fishing industry was very big for Capernaum being on the sea. And Levi would have made a good penny off of these taxes. And as we know from the story of Zacchaeus, the way Levi, the way Zacchaeus made their living was the Roman occupation saying, this is how much you charge for tax. Five bucks or whatever. We'll pick a random thing. Five bucks per fish. That's what everybody owes the Roman occupation for tax. Now, what they would do is they would say seven bucks or eight bucks or 725 or whatever. And they would give five bucks to the Roman rule and they would take two dollars or three dollars for themselves. And that's how they made their living. And that's what Levi is doing right now in his tax booth out by the Sea of Galilee as people are fishing. He is making his living skimming money, not scamming because that's just how they did it, but they weren't liked because of what they were doing. How they had basically, and we'll see in in the following section, how they're lumped in with, with sinners. They were not liked by the Jewish people because they had, in some sense, sold their soul to the other side. They'd betrayed their own family and their friends. They had gone over to the other side. And Levi, sitting there, knowing that he's not liked by these people, by the crowds that are now around him, here's the same call that Simon and Andrew, James and John heard. Follow me. And we have to ask the question, or I do, because this is the question that came to my mind. We're not told in this context. We're not told anywhere else. But given the likelihood of Levi, his booth is here. He's set up. This is his home camp. The likelihood of him actually collecting taxes on fish, and we know the other four were fishermen. This was their job, and we know in all likelihood they provided the whole region with fish. We have to ask the question, did the four disciples that were following Jesus, that had witnessed a couple of miracles, had been following him for a little while, did they know Levi? And did they hate him? (laughs) I might be reading too much into it. We're not told. But the likelihood of them knowing Levi, Levi being the guy who set up his booth where they worked, where they had to go by every day after their catch, after they brought their catch out and they'd go out and they'd sell their fish to the community, then they'd come back with all of their earnings. Levi was the guy that they had to pay their taxes to. And how much that probably would have stunk. I can't think of a better word. How much they wouldn't have liked that. Jesus going out and calling the guy who's basically gone over to the other side the other guy who's taken money from them, taken their hard-earned wages and taken away from them and their family and he receives the same call, follow me. 
We're not given anything beyond these two verses about Levi and the four. But I would have to think that it's a fair assumption that they knew each other. And that's important for us to see that Jesus does not distinguish between hardworking Jewish fishermen and Levi, the son of Alphaeus, a tax collector. What this man needs, just as much as the other four needed, was the call to follow Jesus. And what we see immediately again, he rose and followed him. The question might have come up in their minds, the four that is, it might have come up in their minds, okay, Jesus, you called this guy to follow you, but is this really real? Like, are you just yanking our chain here? What's going on? We know, you got to know what this guy does. You got to know that we don't really like this guy. And we're shown that it's, that it's real, that it's legitimate by verse 15. And he reclined at table in his house. To recline at table or to eat with them, it, it's not just that they had dinner. They didn't just go out to Tim Hortons or go out to Arby's. I guess Arby's is gone now from Guelph, right? I don't know why I thought of Arby's. Um, Swiss Chalet. Lucky Belly. I like Lucky Belly. It's not like they just went out for dinner. That phrase reclined at table to be together in fellowship with Jesus is Jesus giving his stamp of approval and actually approving of these people. And as he reclined, that is Jesus, at table in his house. Now the NIV supplies Levi as the person's house. And we get that from Luke's account where it actually says they went to Luke's house or went to Levi's house, sorry. But it just says in his house. And there's a little bit of ambiguity in the original text. But I think it's likely Levi's house, borrowing from Luke. But also because um, Mark never calls Peter's house, which is the house that Jesus kind of set up home base in. Mark never calls Peter's house Jesus's house. So in all likelihood, Jesus has now gone to the home of a tax collector and a sinner, and he has reclined at table. He has been willing to accept and be a part of and be in fellowship with this sinner. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. There were many people there. That is, one heard the call, but there were many that heard the call as well, and many followed. Just like how back in chapter 1, we, we kind of get that ripple effect of where Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. There's just one healing. And then immediately after, there's that ripple effect where, where many healings take place. Here we get one call, one individual. But then this ripple effect of many people following Jesus. And notice the category of people, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were not just people, according to the Jewish people, according to the Pharisees, sinners were not just people who occasionally transgressed the law, occasionally slipped up, occasionally just kind of messed up. Because in this case, or in that case, everyone's a sinner. And this is how we use the category of sinner, right? Everyone is a sinner. Everyone has transgressed the law of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? This is how we use the category of sinner. And in that sense, everybody is a sinner. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Jewish people use the term sinners, they're referring to people who, are, who stand outside of the law altogether. Not people who have just transgressed it, but people who are just not even in it, haven't even t- attempted to be a part of it. So we think of the, the leper at the end of chapter one. He was unclean and unacceptable according to the law. But that's not because he didn't want to be acceptable or he didn't want to be clean. 
He wanted to do everything that he could to be made right in the eyes of God so that he could be declared clean, so that he could be healed. That's what he wanted. Sinners in this context are people who didn't even try. They didn't even want to be on the outside, which is why tax collectors are lumped in with them. They had willingly transgressed the law. They had willingly stepped outside of the law. They knew what it said. More specifically, and this is why in verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is why they're upset, because they had willingly disobeyed what the Pharisees taught the law, taught about the law. They had willingly stepped outside because, according to Pharisaical law, you don't have financial dealings with, you don't go into business with Gentiles. You don't enter into business with the Romans. Why? You're transgressing the law of God, according to the Pharisees. They're upset because Jesus has now willingly accepted those who they have deemed unacceptable. The leper, the paralytic, were were unacceptable for different reasons. Not their fault. Nothing that they could do. They wanted to be clean, but they couldn't. Jesus now steps into the lives of these people who had willingly and wantingly stepped outside of the law and made themselves unclean. Jesus reclines with them. The scribes of the Pharisees. Not every scribe or teacher of the law was a Pharisee. And this is where we get a hint that it's really the Pharisees that are honing in on because they were the ones that were the spiritual elite. They were the ones that really understood the law better than most. And so the scribes of the Pharisees are very upset and they, when they saw that he was eating with sinners. Now, this is fascinating to me because Pharisees, aside from knowing who was clean and unclean, aside from knowing the law inside and out, and aside from knowing and declaring people clean and unclean and, and, and kind of, they get to decide who the sinners are, right? In their own eyes. That's what they get to do. But They followed Jesus, which is a little creepy, a little weird, because they had been out with, clearly following Jesus as he was out walking through the Sea of Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee. And now they followed him to this house, but they wouldn't have been caught dead in this man's house. Why? He's outside the law. You don't don't fellowship with somebody who has willingly put themselves outside the law. You don't do that. These Pharisees have followed Jesus, maybe just to see where he's going to go, maybe to see what he's going to do. And we're not told exactly where they were. In all likelihood, they wouldn't have been in the house. They wouldn't have stepped over that threshold of that door to actually enter inside the house of a sinner, the house of a tax collector. They're likely standing outside, watching through the windows, critiquing Jesus as he fellowships with, accepts, and eats with these tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, that is, to the scribes of the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Some of Jesus' illustrations and parables are difficult to understand. We see the disciples stumble over the teaching. What does this mean? And what are you getting at, Jesus? This one's nice and easy because it just makes sense. If you're sick, you don't need a doctor. Sick people need doctors. You go to the hospital when you're sick, when there's pain, when there's discomfort. But if you feel healthy, you don't, you don't need a doctor. If you are healthy, you don't need a doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, of course, in the eyes of the Pharisees, they were in the righteous category, and other people were in their sinner category. And we, if we take the way we use the phrase sinner, what we need to, 
what, what the Pharisees needed to see was that you are actually in the category of sinner. You are actually, even though you claim to be in the right, even though you claim to be right with God, you actually stand outside the law as well because you can't uphold the qualifications of the law either. These people may have willingly stepped outside of the law. You're standing right in it and you still stink. You still can't be upheld according to the law. You are not righteous. And yet in their own eyes, they are righteous. And I think that's because they misunderstood what the law was for. They misunderstood what the law was about. The law was not about showing who was on the inside and who was on the outside. Because when you do that, you actually find out that everybody's on the outside, that everybody's unacceptable. I remember Steve, um, when, when we did the Bible in a year, and we got to the, the Levitical law, and he was kind of, he jumped through it in different ways. But I remember when he got to the end of it, He said, if you don't get to the end of the Levitical law and go, oh my goodness, everybody's unclean all of the time, you miss the point. And it's true. We are always unclean according to the law before God. But they were trying to use it to say that they were right before God. They misunderstood what the law was for because the law was designed by God. It was a gracious gift from God designed to show us that we were unclean, not to make us clean. It was designed to show us that we were all sinners, not how we could become righteous. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, has anybody read that? Yeah? It, it's, it's worthwhile reading. We've got a kid's version. If you want to borrow our kid's version to get through it a little bit easier. I was pleased to hear, Candace was reading through it with Amelia, and Amelia didn't want to put it down. She just wanted to hear, what's going to happen to Christian? What's coming next? And I think they got to like the last chapter or two when they get to the celestial city and Amelia was like, no, mommy, read the last one. I want to see them get there. I was like, oh, that just warms my heart. Anyways, John Bunyan writes in, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there's, um, there's a scene, a stage where Christian meets with interpreter and he's talking with interpreter and interpreter takes him into this room, a dusty room. And the room with all of this dust represents the human heart. And in the room is a broom. And the broom represents the law. And as this dialogue between Christian and the interpreter happens, the broom is picked up and it starts sweeping, but all that it does is just kick up the dust. It just makes the, it actually hard to breathe inside this room. It just moves the dust around. It doesn't actually clean the room. And then interpreter says, What's really needed in this human heart is not the law to kick up all the dust. What is needed is the handmaid, which is the gospel, who brings that that cloth into the room and actually cleans up the dust, takes the dust out. That's what they missed. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law missed. They had studied the law so much and so well, they knew it inside and out, and yet they missed the point of the law. They tried to use the law like that broom, They tried to use it to clean up the room, to to make the human heart better so that they could say, look, God, I'm clean. I'm right before you. And yet they missed it. And Jesus, the gospel, is that handmaid that comes in with, with the bucket of water and cleans the room. And that's what Jesus is declaring here. You don't need the law because the law is not going to help. What you need is something different. And they couldn't get past that. They couldn't quite understand that because that's been their whole life. That's been their whole heritage. And as we move into verse 18, we see that they're still stuck on issues of the law. Jesus, you don't don't look right. You 
You don't act properly according to the law. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Fasting being being an important part of religious, pharisaical, and, and Jewish law. And people came to him. People, not the Pharisees at this point. This is interesting that other people had seen this. We're not told who they are. Just people. They had noticed something different about Jesus in the way that he and his disciples acted. And they said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They don't. What's going on? The question is almost implying Jesus, if you want to be taken seriously here in this religious realm, you got to step up your game, okay? We've seen the religious elite in the Pharisees and we see their disciples, even though a Pharisee didn't have a disciple, but they had disciples in the sense of people who followed their teaching, John actually had disciples, people who followed his teaching. Okay, we see something that we're comfortable with, the Pharisees. We've seen this for a long time and they fast. We've seen this weirdo John out in the wilderness dressed in goofy garb and he eats some really weird stuff. And he's clearly a religious zealot as well. And his disciples fast. Jesus, you're claiming to be in this category of religiousness, but you don't fast and your disciples don't fast. What's going on? Fasting was important for a couple of reasons. There was only one mandatory fast according to the law, and that was on the Day of Atonement. You fasted on the Day of Atonement as a sign of repentance before God in preparation for the expiation that was going to take place on the Day of Atonement, the removal of guilt, the removal of sin, the removal of God's wrath off of the nation of Israel. You fasted on that day. But the Pharisees had instituted other days of fast, other practices, and I think it was like every Monday and Thursday they would fast. Not all the time, but that was just kind of their, their thing that they would do. And it, and it showed to the outside world how religious they were. It showed how seriously they took their faith. Especially during the time of exile, which as we come to the New Testament, and at the end of the Old and the beginning of the New, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years where the people of Israel where the nation of God did not hear anything from God or his spirit. And fasting was a sign of grief. Fasting became a sign of sadness over the fact that you were alienated from God. You had been cast off and cast away from God into exile, punishment for your sin. And even though the people had moved back into Israel, they still had not heard from God. The spirit had left the temple and he had not come back. The people had been pushed out and pushed away from their land and their God. And now that they're back in their land, that's great, but they haven't heard from their God. And fasting was a sign of of asking the Lord to hurry up his redemptive process. They're in the middle of Roman occupation right now. Lord, when are you going to send the Messiah to make all of these things right? They fast to show that they are praying and asking God to hurry these things along, to hasten the day of redemption. And Jesus' response is not to negate the fasting that's taken place. He doesn't say fasting is stupid and useless. He doesn't say fasting is wrong. He doesn't say fasting um, should never be done ever and that the Pharisees and John's disciples were wrong in their fasting. His response in verse 19 is, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. 
Jesus gives them an illustration. He doesn't say no fasting. He says, do fasting at the right time. And he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Who are the wedding guests in this illustration? I'm looking for a response here. Who are the wedding guests? The disciples, absolutely. And who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Now that's fascinating because who, according to the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, who is the bridegroom of Israel? Who is the bridegroom of the people of God? It's God himself. This is another, another instance where Jesus is declaring himself to be God by using this illustration. But he uses the, the illustration of a wedding. And what happens at weddings? No fasting, feasting. Maybe too much, arguably so, the way we have weddings. Now, there's, there is food beyond imagination. There's always three, four, five courses, and there's usually a candy bar over there and, and, a, and a dessert table with 50 different desserts. And there's, there's, it's a time for celebration and feasting, not a time for fasting and mourning. It's a time for excitement. Why? Because we are celebrating. What are we celebrating when we, when we come to a wedding and we feast? What are we celebrating? A new relationship. Something that wasn't there that has now been unified, brought back together. We are celebrating a relationship that once didn't exist, that has now been brought together. And Jesus uses that illustration to say, this is what's happening from God and his people. A new relationship is being established. This is time for celebration, not for mourning. A new relationship is being put into place, not according to the law, That's where the Pharisees are getting hung up. This is a new way. This is a different way. But God is establishing a relationship with his people. The days will come when it's appropriate to fast, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That's interesting too. Because when you think of a wedding, according to the, you know, first century context, now we do weddings in a church, in a, in a rental facility, and, and whether you, you do the ceremony in one place and then you have the, the reception afterwards and you can do it in the same place. or We, we do things differently where um, that's not what it would have looked like in the first century. In the first century, the wedding feast happens at the bridegroom's house. You come to the bridegroom's house and you fellowship, feast with, celebrate with the bridegroom in his new relationship with his bride And you do that at his house. And yet we're told in verse 20 that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That's backwards. The wedding guests are supposed to leave the bridegroom. Not the other way around. Most people believe, and I think uh, most scholars are right, that this is a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. That there will be a time where Jesus is taken away from his people. The relationship is not broken. The relationship is not gone, but the bridegroom is no longer physically with his people. And on that day, they will fast. Now, whether this is talking about Jesus' crucifixion particularly, whether it's talking about um, eschatological stuff right now, Jesus is reigning and ruling on high. He is with us in his spirit right now. And yet at the same time, he is not physically standing with us. There's a couple of different ways you could go from it. But... I think the important part is, is not what does verse 20 mean, but the fact that the Pharisees got it wrong, that a new relationship is being established and we need to celebrate over that. And Jesus explains that with two more illustrations, 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the, a worse tear is made. 
You can't, you can't take a new patch and put it on the old. And then the wine verse, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because if you put new wine in that hasn't fermented, as fermentation process takes place, it expands. And if the old wineskins, which expanded already with the old wine, they've been expanded to their breaking point. They've been used up to their full potential. And if you put new wine inside of that, as it ferments, it'll, it'll keep pushing the boundaries of it and eventually it'll burst. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What is Jesus doing with these two verses? I think very simply what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you need a whole new category of understanding who I am and the relationship I'm establishing from God to his people. I think that's simply what he's saying. The law has a purpose the law, the old garment. That old garment had a purpose, but it's been worn out. And you don't take the new, and you don't understand what Jesus is doing in representing the new, establishing the kingdom of God. It's not just a patch on the old. It's not just a fixer-upper, as if the law had 98%, it got you 98% of the way there, and you just needed that patch to get you over that 2%. That's not the law. And that's not who Jesus is. You don't need a really good patch on an old garment. You need a whole new robe. That's what Jesus brings. A whole new robe. And Jesus being the new wine, the new ways, they're not going to fit inside of the old ways. They're not meant to be understood in the confines of the law. Now, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But once it's been fulfilled, what do you do with it? You don't need it anymore. It's been used to its full purpose. Just as these old wineskins have been used to its full purpose, you don't need them anymore. You need new skins, fresh wineskins for this new wine. You need a fresh perspective, a fresh understanding. You need to put aside the old ways of understanding how you associated with God, how you, how you came before God, how you became acceptable before God. Put that aside. It served its purpose in the old. But now there's new. New clothes, new wine, new relationship. All of that being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and what he establishes in the kingdom of God. You and I do not relate to God on the basis of our actions. You and I do not relate to God on the basis of how well we uphold the Old Testament law or whatever other kind of law we may put in our minds, like the Pharisees had done. We sometimes can even create within our own minds, well, I'm not perfect, but here's my, here's my standard, and if I uphold that standard, I'll be acceptable before God. And Jesus is coming to bring a new way because he's fulfilled the old. Let's put it aside. It's not needed. And what we see in our first paragraph that we saw with, with Levi and the tax collectors and sinners and what the Pharisees could not get over and then with these illustrations that we see is that you cannot come to God any other way than through Jesus. Whatever other good law you've got in place, you won't stand up to it. You can't uphold it. And how do these tax collectors and sinners get in? Well, it's not on the basis of the law. It's on the basis of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's on the basis of his willingness to accept all who will follow him, all who will answer the call. It's that simple. Now, we want to talk about 
a lot. We want, we want to talk about, well, yes, but Christians live a certain way. Absolutely. And when the grace of God has impacted your heart and when the love of Jesus Christ has overshadowed all that you do, your life changes. It's no longer the same. You don't act the same as you did in an unsanctified, unsafe state. And yet at the same time, what Jesus is saying when he welcomes, accepts those who were unacceptable according to the Pharisees, he sits with, reclines with, and eats with these people. He's saying, you don't have to do anything to earn my acceptance. All you have to do is follow. That has ramifications for how you live your life. How you follow Jesus should change. It's a process. You will become what he is making you into. But that's not how you get in with Jesus. That's not how you become right before God. You become right before God by sitting with Jesus, by following him. He's made a new way. There's a new relationship. He's given us new clothes. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's a new wine. The wine representing God's wrath in the Old Testament as well to be crushed under the wine press, the wrath, the fury of God. There's a new wine that's been given to us. It's no longer wrathful because Jesus has taken that wrath. And we now have fresh wine in Jesus Christ. I think for us as we contemplate what this means for the table, celebrating with, communing with, fellowshipping with each other and the Lord, the table, eating the bread, drinking the wine. We are coming together at the Lord's table and we need to remember as we come to it that you do not fellowship at the table of Jesus on the basis of what you do. Jesus has said, that's all gone. I've established a new way. We fellowship at the table, not on the basis of of law, but on the basis of grace. The reason that We take those little cups with those really poorly tasting cardboard wafers and that funky tasting juice. We do it and we get to celebrate and anticipate, rejoice in the salvation we have because of grace. That's it. It's simple, but it's sweet. There's lots to be expanded on. What does it mean to come to the table of Jesus? by grace and not by law. It's worth exploring. But for now, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We stand right before God, sinners as we are, clothed in the beauty of Christ because of what he's done. I'm going to invite a few of our musicians. I think there's only two or three. We're going to have a song of reflection, a song of rejoicing, reflecting on the table and what it means for us. And then afterwards, we will celebrate together the table of our Lord.